Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. Uh, hello, Internet. Welcome to Polycast, episode number 393. This is one of your regular co-hosts, Mega Bears Fan, along with our usual hosts, Canis Albinus. One of these days, we will get the working audio, and it will sound good, and it won't be garbage. And we will hopefully not all be confused by the lack of audio. Uh, and also joining us is Makalua. That'd be great if we still had audio cues. It's much easier if we had an audio cue because we just gotten used to knowing what to do. But no, you can't have that. Can't have nice things. Screw off, YouTube. And we also have with us the me and team, who I think is away from the computer at the moment, but should be back momentarily, hopefully. So just imagine me and team saying something witty right here. Something <laughs> witty and something involving beating something up or taking something or teasing something. He will exploit your mechanics. That that All definitely right. does sound like something he would say. Yeah. Something similar. All right, we don't have a news topic this time. Amazing. So we will move to our commentary on something that happened almost four years ago now at the Game Developer Conference in 2007. Uh, Sid Meier and Bruce Shelley gave a presentation about the making of the very first Civilization. And it was an hour-long presentation. And it was a good read, or not a good read, a good listen. I actually had heard most of the story once before at the uh, Firaxicon conference that I attended, but it was still a good talk to listen to. And one of the things that was interesting about this as well is uh, Bruce Shelley, uh, who worked with Sid Meier on the first Civilization, eventually went on to the studio that worked on, uh, uh, what was it, Age of Empires? Yeah. Uh, so one of the interesting insights in this talk is the the contrasting design philosophies between making a turn based game and making a real time uh, game. And uh, I, I guess uh, Bruce Shelley was saying that one of their original like design conceptions for Age of Empires was that they wanted to make a real time civilization, and then ended up finding out that it just wasn't super feasible to do that. So they had to, you know, take that kind of hybrid approach where they just did like each specific era uh, as like its own self-contained game. And uh, that was the best that they could come up with at the time. Well, that was in the days before Rise of Nations. Because Rise of Nations is just Civ in real time. Yeah, it's this, this weird kind of halfway between Civ and StarCraft. Uh, Rise of Nations is actually a really good game. I wish it was not dead. There should okay, be a Rise of Nations it. 4. It was just, uh, it's basically just Civ 3, but in uh, real time. It's where the idea for each unit becomes its own boat comes from. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and because... if, I, if I remember correctly, it had this uh, a campaign mode where you played based on like a little risk map, and uh, 
each time you attacked another country, you, you got to play like a real-time battle. Although, Warlords 2 had units becoming boats, as did Warlords 3, so I'm not sure that they pioneered that concept. Yeah, perhaps not. But anyway, there was also like a sandbox mode where you literally just start uh, the battle in the ancient era and progress through the tech tree and through the eras, like just like you would in, in Civilization. Yeah, that's the only version of it I've actually played. And then there was this thing called Rise of Legends that came later that nobody remembers, but it was also interesting. It was the same game engine, but made with mythological figures. But yeah, the video was very entertaining and very fun to watch. Uh, although at the very end, there were like all these game developers who were like, we're making a game and blah, 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 this is what it is. Like, hey, let's get our name out there in the end of this video. And then ask a completely unrelated question. Yeah, or just and, say how much they, you know, love playing Civ and how they one more turned, you know, through the wee hours of the we're morning. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of that vibe going on. To be fair, when I met Sid, it was kind of the same. Yeah. And I didn't meet him up close. I just, well, he walked up to us while we were doing our, believe it or not, we had, uh, what was it, Anton Stranger we had? Right before God's, or not right before Rise and uh, Fall? Beyond Earth, Rise and Tide. Oh. And uh, we were doing an interview with the guy on Polycast, because Majin was there, too. And uh, as we were doing the thing, Sid Meier walked up and said, what's going on? Oh, I kind of like, remember this now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember the story for sure. It happened live on Polycast, so. Yeah, yeah. That, was the, that was the what? <laughs> Super special guest appearance. Totally unplanned. It's like a like a Stan Lee cameo in a Marvel movie. Yeah. But yeah, something else that was interesting was, if, if I remember correctly, I think uh, Sid Meier was even saying that the original version of the first Civ was real-time. And uh, yeah. that, that didn't work out too well, so they switched to the, the turn-based thing, and, and obviously that just worked way better. He said it was like a SimCity-type thing. Yeah, I guess um, it was more about building the cities and infrastructure... I wonder if, if that first one maybe had, like, district and building placement on the map and stuff like that, more akin to what we have now in Civ Six. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, Bruce, Shelley shed, Bruce Shelley said that he still has the first disc of the first playable build of Civilization, so maybe someday we'll see that. Yeah, he should probably hand that over to, like, the Library of Congress or something. Might not be a bad idea. Then again, it is the Library of Congress. They don't exactly... They're run by the federal government, and they might not be able to do what they need to do, but... Computers can't use those disks anymore. Don't be silly. They actually can. Oh, and I... it's... There's okay. plenty of Congress people right... There's plenty of Congress people right now who I think are still using computers that that disk will work on just fine. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Somehow I doubt that. They might not know computers, but I'm sure they can afford something relatively new, even if they don't know how to use it. I mean, some of them are older than the computers themselves. That's true. Well, <clears throat> it's also just a situation where this is the computer I've used for years. Why do I have to upgrade? That kind of thing goes on, too. Well, they usually stop working at some point. Even old computers, if you use them, they tend to, tend to have one a shelf of, life. Yeah, one of the senators who's running for re-election this upcoming year has been in, is uh, 90-some, and when he finishes his next term will be 97. It's so like, impressive. you should probably retire at some point, dude. Well, some people don't want to, though. 
and I mean, as long as they're functional, I can respect that. Yeah, I keep going as long as you can, you know, and, and one of the things that keeps you healthy and keeps you going for a lot of people is just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. So if you if you can do it, all the more power to you. Now, I have some qualms about how they generally uh, set policy, but that's not unique to one person. <laughs> or one party. Oh, yeah, no, no, not at all. That is a system set up for failure, unfortunately. But before we get too politicasty, I'll just go silent. I didn't know if that was anybody had anything else to say or just jump right in. <laughs> Anyways, opening, well, speaking of Civ and early things, uh, your opening gambit, what you do first, because uh, SC Brain had asked everyone Civ Fanatics, is like, is this opening gambit or what hardwired into the game? Because he keeps doing basically the Archer Rush. Yep, and- another player found an Archer <laughs> Rush. <laughs> and hey, and- that's, I mean, it's a good tactic when uh you're not being like massively out teched or like they don't start with a bajillion warriors or whatever so i mean it's respectable to find something effective for sure well whether you're planning on actually doing a military rush with those archers or not it's still not a bad idea to like adopt uh the agoji policy and just spam out those three slingers very early in the game so that you can upgrade them to archers because <laughs> the upgrade is really cheap on standard speed it's only like 60 gold or something like that and yeah. when you get those three archers, you get the Eureka for uh, machinery, which is the technology that unlocks crossbowmen. And it's just so much more efficient to have those three slingers out early because they're so cheap to build and upgrade them than it is to, you know, have like one of them and then suddenly be like, oh, crap, I need to build two more archers when you've just got a whole lot of other things to worry about. Well, the archers aren't too bad with the policy either. I think some of the main benefits to this generally is that it keeps, unless you're getting like barb cheesed in the first few turns, it keeps barbs off your back and it's pretty good anti-rush. Like you don't need that much more, even on deity, if the AI is rushing you, uh, you just need a couple things so that they can't just run and pound your city and a couple warriors and you're good. Uh, So it's a legitimate defensive tactic as well as an offensive one. Yeah, you just get that first archer out and send it out with a, a warrior to go take care of a barbarian outpost, and that will give you the gold to upgrade the uh, other two of them. And of course, you don't have to stop at three slingers. Like you can build however the heck many slingers you think you're going to need, uh, and uh, you know, I mean, you'll use them for sure. Now, should I start some more meme nonsense talking about the uh, benefits of slings versus archery in history and? Uh, how different people try to oversell one versus the other, etc. Those are always fun threads. <laughs> but even this is only one kind of rut you can get into because somebody, I who did this point out in the thread? Oh yeah, Tech Osin, that he has his own rut, like always going for a traitor strategy with Al's and Minerva, the Whistle Bank, and a democracy. And everybody's got a different, and even was pointed out by Victoria that even the really good players have I mean, yeah, they can use the Archer Rush, but a lot of them like to do, like, Scout, Builder, Slinger in that order. Yeah. Everybody wants to build those three first, and the argument's really about what order you build them in. And it's it's not hardwired into the game. It's just, it's a really efficient thing, but there's other more efficient things. And it was also <laughs> suggested to the, the original poster that maybe you should go up a level if it's being this easy for you with the Archer Rush. You know, maybe that's a sign you, you could move up, or you could try something different, or even... I think one thing was just play a peaceful game. Don't go, you know, expand and stuff, but don't go starting wars and, you know, challenge yourself that way. 
The interesting yeah. thing is, like, if you're good at managing your units, you can be effective with the Archer Rush pretty high. I mean, eventually, you're, the AI is going to get walls too quickly uh, to take cities with it. Yeah. Uh, just pointed out that the Horse Rush was better for Deity, but I don't, I don't know where the crossover is between Archer Rush and Horse Rush. Yeah, if you, you have you horses, build things behind it. Rush. Yeah. Also, if you have horses, at least yeah, at least the slingers and archers aren't uh, resource dependent. But it still won't have something. It won't hurt to have extra stuff to kill all the units uh, first, because mm-hmm. you're not going to like you can't just run horses through melee. You have to actually deal with the melee. <laughs> Otherwise, you won't have enough places to attack cities from and crap. So it's still nice to get rid of units. But yeah, like, you can't, like, it is disproportionately easier to execute an archer rush than it is to play in general on higher difficulties. Uh, so you can get yourself into a bit of a trap where, like, that's the only thing you can do to be successful on a difficulty level. Um, which might be fine, because like, then you can try to learn your way up, uh, so to speak. But it depends how much the player wants to try to get better overall as well. See, do, we, do any of us as players have any specific tactics we like to use that aren't mentioned here? I don't really have anything like this concrete. I just build military and kill stuff usually. Yeah, I mean, I I already talked about mine, which is just making sure that I get that Eureka for the uh, machinery technology as early as I can. Well, well, Eurekas in general are, unless you have to like pay a lot to get them, they're usually worth the investment. Like you're not putting that many extra resources into what amounts to a pretty substantial increase to your technology, right? So even if you're like, full-bore military, it's still useful to pick up most of the Eurekas uh, when you can pull it off, because it'll just patch up so many of your inadequacies as a research nation if you're just drilling out units. Yeah, with, with regard to build order, my personal preference is to do the slinger first, then the builder, just so that my builder doesn't get like captured by an errant barbarian that just shows up all of a sudden. Uh, but also, you can send that slinger out uh, a little bit, you know, keep him close in case you do need to come back to protect your civilians from... Uh, uh, barbarians. But you can send them out a little bit to look for barbarian scouts and stuff like that and uh, and kill them and then possibly also get the Eureka for, what is it, I think bronze working is uh, kill three barbarian units or something like that. And then you can also get the archery Eureka by dealing the finishing blow on a barbarian with a slinger, which is something I always also try to do. And hopefully don't end up just getting the barbarian unit down to one hit point and then it runs away. No, oh, I love it when that happens. It happens a little too often. I think the closest I have is do- doing something along the lines of the scout builder slinger thing, but usually maybe with an extra scout in there because m- most of my playing lately has been in the multiplayer game, and I want to get to the huts first before everybody else does. But it also helps to have the map knowledge so I know if I've got somebody close enough to rush or if I'm going to just be sitting there and building up and then coming in with either like the crossbow trebuchet or, or you know, later. It also depends on who I roll, because, you know, if you roll Korea, uh, yeah, let's start getting out the uh, uh, all the Seowans everywhere. Science rush! Gotta scout out that horse and iron and block the opponent from getting them hooked up. My personal favorite strategy is the don't-do-anything-aggressive motion, and then just steamroll them later. But I play on Prince, so it doesn't matter so much. I mean, that was the go-to in Civ Four. Early aggression was usually had to have a favorable situation for it on high difficulties. It's less true in Civ Six. You can fight pretty early and just keep fighting all the time. And in some ways, the game incentivizes that because, like, it introduces diplomatic penalties, but they're much more minor if you go knocking heads early. It might just be my general 
preference for the worker model over the builder model, but <laughs> I don't like having to rebuild workers or builders. Yeah, that's a pain. I think we could probably get rid of workers entirely at this point or builders. Because if you're just dropping hammers or gold into building charges, you can just skip the steps and just do building charges to make yeah, it. Yeah, but then it would be a you, that would be make the game almost exclusively a war game. It, well, <laughs> he, <laughs> there's no real difference other than the number of inputs here, and that you have a very minor—I mean, less minor for the AI, but a very minor risk to civilian units. But that's very minor in the scheme of things. I think, <laughs> if you're the only difference is that you make a unit physically and move it somewhere to to improve something versus just clicking there and improving it i I don't know it's the same thing with extra steps. I don't see that that makes it more of a building game to, to execute those extra steps, assuming that the tray offs are similar like it still takes time to get the improvement or whatever like you would have to tune it, but there's no there's no real basis for saying one is more warlike than the other inherently. I don't think that's true at all. That could easily be true. I would probably get used to it. I just don't know if I like it now. Reject change is my problem. Well, yeah, I mean, there's the the switch to builders, too, is also a big change. But, like, you could even still have your uh, timed uh, turn planning be very relevant under such a model. I am totally a person who is stuck to the, they changed it, now it stinks. (laughs) Well, all right, you heard it from Canis. We need to go back to Vassal States and especially the Apostolic Palace. No. As long as the is that <sighs> what's our next topic? It's uh more of a segue from the difficulty discussion, I believe. Unless uh, we have yes. anything else to say. I think we reached the end of the thread really. Okay. Well in that case we are making a jump over to Reddit. Uh, by user not so tasty butterfly and it's a poll what difficulty do you all play on so he grouped up settler to warlord and that has the fewest responses of 224 uh the most responses with over a thousand uh, is emperor so that is the most common difficulty to play uh, followed by prince which is 866 immortal uh, deity 637 and 541 for immortal so uh yeah, yeah i'd say six six is a little easier than uh for for sure, because the deity percentages were tiny uh, relative to this in so four days, and uh, was immortal was much more common than deity back then. Well, I also wonder, like, if it might also be a difference in like demographics of the players. You know, maybe there's just a lot more you know power players on Reddit than on other <laughs> platforms. <laughs> You will not get me to accept at baseline that the average skill of Reddit is higher than Civ Fanatics yeah. for Civ games. It's, it's not that there aren't some talented people that are also over on Reddit, but the average... Is, yeah, but know. on average, no, no. freaking way. <laughs> oh yeah, like you go to any game forum on Reddit and you will find very good players, like top-level players, representing that game, posting there. Like people like Lambda or other people who are doing like, you know, pre 1600s World Conquest in E4. You have guys who do like 100 streak plus uh, in FTL. Like, there are very good players on Reddit. But yeah, that would not be your average uh, player on Reddit. Reddit is kind of that irresistible cesspool to which all the idlers and useless people on the internet are drained. <laughs> I think that's less true on gaming for sub four subreddits, though, than it is in general on Reddit. But yeah, I would still, on average, not say that they are more skillful than Sif fanatics, especially not to the degree that like they 
<laughs> the deity overtakes previous difficulty. <laughs> that would not be my, my pick for explaining this. Also, they forgot King. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. I could have swore there was a King difficulty and that that was like the default normal, so to speak, difficulty setting. I thought Prince was the default and King was one up or did they like yeah, change Prin- that? No, Prince is the default because yeah, when we load into the multiplayer game before it gets set, it does default to Prince. Because so, they got rid of Noble. Yeah, yeah there's no well, Noble. That's King, basically. But, uh, or sort of. Um, I wonder how many of the people who are Emperor actually would have been King. You know, like, this is the closest level, and I don't want to put a lower level than I play. Yeah, I mean, a fair number of the responses are talking about that they play on King. Control F it. Okay, there's a lot of, a lot of King. Yeah, or like they're, they're, they're mixing between King and Emperor, just depending on how they're feeling when they yeah. start that particular game, which, yeah, no, I get that because I do that a lot too. Because, like, there's some days where I just do not have the brain power to try and do a harder difficulty level. I'm like, can I just have a fun, peaceful, easy game thing? It might also be that uh, you can win Deity if you cook the rules. So people say, well, I win on Deity because I beat a game on Deity once. Oh, yeah, like a 1v1 or whatever. Oh, you mean small map and rush the other guy? Look, I want a deity, guys. I mean, yeah. I have the achievement, so I'm clearly... Clearly, I'm an, an advanced level player. I don't play single player that much, so it's been a long time. But when I did, I played on deity, and I was able to win standard settings deity. But uh, yeah, when we do turn casts, uh, it's usually Emperor, right? Although I think uh, sometimes they do King. I think they have been... Yeah, we've backed... <laughs> It had been Emperor most of the time, but we'd had a lot of people getting frustrated because we also usually have barbs on, and this was making it rough for some people if they got stuck in a corner or stuck up against the tundra. I think there were some other things about we were having to go much further, and it was taking the game a long time, and we were just having to chew through the AI, and it wasn't fun. So we brought it back down to King, because that's a balanced level where you know people like Grimm, who plays deity all the time probably too isn't bored but the rest of us aren't frustrated <laughs> multiplayer games are free wins if you're a deity player like you don't really have to <laughs> yeah, your start doesn't matter the, what the eyes do doesn't matter it doesn't really matter anymore i'm sure grimbeck is in a similar boat because he's actually yeah, i would say better than me at Civ six yeah so he gets to go off and do fun entertaining projects like hmm if i do this can i win or can i win a religious victory and nobody notices <laughs> Which, yeah? yeah, that happened like a few weeks ago. Yeah, that that brought back memories of that time that Peach Rocks and I were like doing culture stuff, and then when we, when we permanently allied, we just won on the spot while and everyone else was, was like, playing normally. What? Yeah. That was good, though. We took advantage of the the split great person pools to bomb up. Like we only needed to get one city properly because we each just artist bombed uh, two of the other cities up. And so far, it was funny. Yeah, they weren't leaning, and suddenly they won. It was like, what? what? <laughs> the good old days. Well, hey, Grimbeck just pulls the same stuff for the religious now, so, you know. Yep. Or that time that we actually did PvP, and uh, five coastal cities were destroyed by Minas Curious. <laughs> <laughs> we never played multiplayer uh, competitive again. But it's fun. I think the more more recent time we tried it with Civ Six, and I I unfortunately got stuck next to Grim, and he was Nubia. Talk yeah, about you Archer rush. Oh Ow. no! Ow! Yeah, that'd be rough. We should get Grim on the show sometime. Has he been on Polycast yet? I think he has been once. Oh uh, yeah, once ages ago though. I think. Yeah, we should definitely. 
What I need to do is hire a consultant to get us uh, guests again, because I'm really bad at getting people to answer me when I say, hey, come on our show. Yeah, I never had much luck either. I don't know. Dan had the touch for that. I don't know what he did, but he was good at it. He just sent me an email. That was it. (laughs) Yeah, maybe he just sent out like 200 emails or something. Yeah, maybe. And then like took like five people who actually answered. It could be. And then one way to approach it. And then three of them would uh, be no call, no shows on the day of the recording. And okay, we've got two guests uh, this week. Oh yeah, yeah. We would end it with the uh, guest pool, but hey, I, that was good. A lot of perspectives. Yeah, I, I remember uh, we would have that happen every now and then with Dan. He'd invite multiple people. You know, like there'd be two or three people uh, that would be kind of queued up to be on, and then you know one or two of them wouldn't show up. And it's like, all right, well, we've we've got our one co-host or guest host. We were planning on having two or three, but we we got one. Better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, now that we've talked about all the inside baseball stuff, let's talk about Portugal. Yeah, so, uh... For those who don't know, I uh, have been doing uh, Civilization VI strategy guides, and I covered all of the new civilizations for uh, the New Frontiers past, which uh, came out, what, through all of last year? Has it been a whole year since New Frontiers? Good lord. Yeah. It has been like 15 months, 18 months. Yeah, they, the last one was like, uh, what, March or something like that? Yeah. Oh boy, time flies. And I think Portugal might have been the last guide that I made, or second to last, or something like that. But anyway, I, I did a guide for all the new civs. Uh, I did not do guides for the new leaders that had existing civs. I just didn't have time to get around to that. But I got all the new civs, at least. Uh, so we just wanted to go through, and uh, being that this is a uh, podcast focused on game strategy, talk about some actual game strategy. Uh, so... Portugal, as you all may recall, has its civilization ability, which is the Casa de India. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Which is basically that you can only send trade routes over water. And those water routes have boosts to all yields. And uh, I had to do a lot of experimentation with this particular ability, uh, which is one of the reasons that these darn strategy guides take so long to make. Uh, in order to figure out exactly how it works, what you can do, what you can't do. And things that I figured out is that it basically comes down to your trader has to go across ocean tiles in order to get to a foreign city. Uh, If it does not go across ocean tiles, it cannot trade to that city. So that means it cannot trade across... uh, You cannot have landlocked trade routes if the foreign city just happens to be on the coast, which I think the ability description implies that you would be able to do, because I think it just says cities on the coast. So it's like, yeah, technically, if I send a land route to a city that's on the coast, that is a city on the coast, and it should work, but it doesn't unless the route actually goes over ocean. You also cannot send these foreign trade routes across lake uh, water, you know, like large lakes. I tried this, yeah, I tried this even with both cities having a harbor on the same uh, lake, and there's even a screenshot of that 
uh, in the strategy guide, and the game would not let me send a trade route from my city to that foreign city across that same lake. So it does specifically have to be oceans. And uh, that experiment particular was a real pain in the butt to uh, set up. I tried setting it up in the world builder, but the uh, world builder isn't particularly stable in Civ 6. It worked fine in, like, Rise and Fall, and then after Gathering Storm came out, like, some stuff broke, and I would create maps and things like that, and then they would just fail to load. So... Uh, I had to just go back to, you know, cooking settings and hoping I would just roll a map that uh, works in order to test certain edge cases like this, which is a big pain in the ass. I really wish wish uh, Fraxis would have had better support for the world builder. I'm sure there's a lot of modders out there who would also have appreciated it. As far as I know, it's still broken, but I haven't used it in quite a while. So, I agree. <laughs> yeah, it's always nice when the things that are in the game work. Yeah. <laughs> You're just too old school. Yeah, e- even if they are the really narrow-use niche things like the World Builder, where only a handful of, you know, probably mostly power users even know that it exists, let alone use it. Uh, but it still would be nice if it actually worked fairly reliably and consistently. I feel like it got more use when it was more emphasized as well. Well, I remember in Civ Four, you just hit a keyboard shortcut during a game, and it would toggle yeah. on the world builder, and you could just Oops. add cities and units and wonders and change the map willy-nilly in the middle of a game without even having to, like, leave the game and load a different screen. That was, like, crazy. <laughs> it was like they wanted you to cheat in Civ Four. Yeah, there's, like, uh, the topic we covered last week with the uh, retrospective, actually, there are the devs at first were a little reticent for that, but then put it in, and it was quite successful. And I don't see any reason it wouldn't still be successful. Yeah, it was certainly easy. I, I think that it might be more complicated now to uh, to code, perhaps, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know offhand. I don't see why necessarily, but it might be. Uh, but anyway, uh, moving on with Portugal, the uh, leader ability is the Porta do Cerso, which is that all units get plus one sight, and that you get plus one trade route capacity when a new civilization is met, and they get free open borders with all city-states, which is a pretty powerful ability, because trade routes in both Civ Five and Civ Six are pretty powerful things, and uh, Portugal's trade routes uh, to foreign coastal cities generate a lot more yield, so they're even more profitable trade routes than most civs. The catch is you actually have to have foreign coastal cities to send those trade routes to, otherwise the ability is kind of meh. You can still send domestic trade routes between your cities for the food and production boost and stuff like that, but you know the good rewards are foreign cities. And if the AIs or other players are just not building their cities on the coasts or not you know building harbors that give you access to the cities, uh, you're just kind of hosed. Not much you can do about it. I think a lot of time when I've played Portugal, it's actually the city-states I've traded more with because they're more likely to spawn on the coast for some reason. I don't yeah. know... Yeah, and I, I actually seem to recall that being the case as well with uh, with my um, playthroughs with Portugal to create this guide. I don't know if I've mentioned that anywhere in the guide itself, but uh, yeah, and you get the uh, the free open borders with all city-states too, so mm-hmm. uh, Portugal is kind of intended to play friendly with the city-states uh, in general, although there's you know still nothing stopping you from just going and conquering them all if that's what you want to do. 
Uh, so they're not foreign cities to trade with anymore. Yeah, yeah. If you need the trade routes, then you, you probably don't want to do that. But uh, because you do get free open borders with the city-states, one of the things that I did mention that I would do from time to time is, uh, especially after I had um, used up all the charges on the now unit, which we'll get to later, is I if uh, another city or another uh, civ would declare war in a city-state, I would just surround it with my own military units so that they couldn't ever actually conquer it, and I could keep it as a trade partner. Because you never lose that open borders, so you never have to worry about your units getting kicked out. You can literally just make a unit wall around the city-state. And if that other civ is landlocked, then you only need land units. And you know, if you're lucky, maybe you only need like two or three or four units uh, because the other Civ doesn't have naval units, or at least not naval melee units, to come around and take the city by the sea. And even then, if if you might be able to park your used-up nows around it if you had to do that. Right, exactly, which I would do in the few cases where these uh, AI Civs would actually build a viable navy. Which uh, I think we all know is pretty uncommon uh, yeah. <laughs> in all of the Civilization games. <laughs> Uh, seeing AIs with viable navies that are not England or, you know, the Norway slash Dane slash Vikings is uh, pretty uncommon. And yeah, you also want friendly relations with the city-states because you can also build the Fatoria on them, which we'll, uh, which we'll also get to later. Uh, but their unique building is the Navigation School, which is uh, a replacement for the University... So I guess everybody who goes and gets a higher education degree in Portugal also learns how to become a sailor. Uh, and that building, or a navigator, right? Yeah, and that building provides bonus science for every uh, coast or lake tile worked by the city, as well as bonus production towards uh, naval units and a great admiral point on top of whatever you might be producing from your harbor and buildings in the harbor. Uh, so it can be a pretty powerful building because you're probably going to have a lot of coastal cities. And if you've got, like, reefs and stuff like that uh, on your cities, like, the navigation school is going to generate a lot of science for you. And you can also stack that with the aquarium, uh, which I think also provides science on water resource tiles, like fish and whales and crabs and stuff like that. I love the aquarium. I love aquariums in general. And then the unique unit is, of course, the Now, which is a replacement for the Caravel, and its uh, special ability is that it gets a free promotion, and it has two charges with which it can construct Fatorias. Uh, so mostly the Now is is not really a... Uh, you don't really use it typically as like a military unit. It's more kind of just like a reconnaissance and exploration unit, and actually almost as much an economic unit as it is a military unit. But then, of course, once you use up those charges, then you can, you know, go send them out on patrols and protect your coasts or uh, make walls of now around those city-states that you're trading with so that the other civs can't uh, conquer them. Uh, but it's, it's, it's really not intended to be a combat unit. It's really just intended for you to build those two Fatoria and then, you know, you can even disband them if you want. What was that, Canis? You were kind of breaking up. I didn't realize you could clear radiation fallout with it. Well, yeah, anything that you could do with a builder charge that's, like, not building an improvement, you can uh, do. I, I forget if you can also harvest resources with the now. You might also be able to do that. I forget. I don't know if I mentioned that specifically in the guide. Uh, but they can repair pillaged improvements. 
Uh, they can remove existing improvements, and they can clear nuclear fallout. I don't think they can harvest, but they can do those repair things. So it's it's not a bad idea to keep, like, one or two of them around your own coast in case, like, a hurricane or something comes along and, like, wipes out a bunch of your fishing boats. You can use your now to fix them instead of having to build a builder and send it out there. Uh, and then as for the Phaetoria itself, it is something that you build on coastal water tiles with other civilizations or city-states with which you have open borders. And, of course, you automatically get open borders with all of the city-states, so... As long as they have a water tile somewhere in their territory, you should expect to be able to build a Phaetoria. And the effect is that it gives plus one production and plus four gold on the tile. So that's a benefit that goes to the other civilization or city-state, which is why I generally preferred to focus on building them in city-states first, because then you don't have to worry about giving free production to a direct competitor. Uh... But then they also give a bonus of four gold to any Portuguese trade route that goes into that city. Uh, and the Feitoria cannot be removed by uh, any method, um, except, I think, raising the city. So, um, and the advantage to the Feitoria is, it might sound like you're just breaking even, like, oh, uh, the other sieve is getting one production and four gold and I'm getting one production and four gold. So like, what's the point in building this? I'm just giving them the same yield that I'm getting in return. It uh, doesn't seem very advantageous, uh, but you can send multiple trade routes to that same foreign city and you get those bonus for, for each of your trade routes. Whereas the foreign city only gets it on the tile once on which the Fatoria is built. So you can double dip, the other civs can't. Uh, you, ca I think the game does let you build multiple Fatorias within the borders of the same foreign city, in which case you would be giving, you know, letting them double dip, but you probably don't want to do that because it doesn't give you... I don't think it gives you any increasing bonus. I'd have to actually reread this section to find out. I forget. I think I did mention that in here, whether or not you get stacking bonuses from having multiple Fatorias in the same city. <laughs> One of the tricky things about this, though, is that you're still also dependent on the other civs and city-states doing specific things. Uh, if they haven't annexed water tiles, uh, you can't build Fatorias because they don't own the tile yet. So one way around that with city-states in particular is if you send additional envoys to the city-state, it will uh, force that city-state to annex new tiles. You don't have any control over what tiles they do annex, so it's kind of a crapshoot whether they'll take the water tile that you want to build your Fatoria on, or if it'll just be, you know, some stupid random Tundra tile. Uh, but that's one way to increase the amount of tiles that city-states have, is to send envoys to them. Fatoria effects, Fatoria effects do stack. Oh, do they? Okay, yeah, I couldn't remember. I, I do think I tested that, and it's in this guide somewhere, but I'm just I just wasn't seeing it. I'd also like to point out, just generally, like, don't worry about buffing a single competitor, like, because it benefits you too, and you can do that with multiple competitors, and they only get one thing. They, you get things from all the trades. It's the same principle as, like, trading technologies and so forth. Right. As long as you yeah. maintain peaceful relations with that, that foreign sieve, you get the benefit. What you don't want to do is build a Fatoria in the borders of a uh, foreign civilization with which you are perpetually at war. Because then yeah. you are just giving a direct competitor bonus yields, and you're probably never going to be able to sustain trade routes with them long enough to get as much use out of it. 
and you're probably going to try and conquer that city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah, that, that is a bit of a confounding factor. If you're going to take the city anyway, then don't bother. Yeah, uh, in the in the middle of the guide, I have my own personal like priorities for building Phaetoria, and the the order that I personally came up with is uh, focus on allied cities that you are already sending trade routes to, because the alliance gives you bonuses on those trade routes already, so you can stack those with the Phaetoria. And then the second priority should be suzerain city states that have good uh, high trade route yields. Um, and I think you can stack that. Uh, I think there's policies that also improve the uh, yield for city-states. Is Whistlebanken one of them, or is that just allied uh, major civs? I forget. Um, but you can stack those as well. Then my third priority would be friendly cities with which you are already tr- sending trade routes to. So not allies, but friendly cities. So you're not getting stacking bonuses from an alliance. You're just getting the bonus from the Fatoria in that case. Then number four is civilizations who you are not currently trading with, but with whom you would like to improve diplomatic relations and send trade routes to in the future. You know, you can go ahead and build Fatorias in their cities. I don't think the AIs, like, notice that you've improved their territory, and, like, I don't think that improves relationships at all, so you still have to put in the work uh, diplomatically by, like, sending delegations or... uh, embassies or whatever to try to improve relations. You can't just like build a Fatoria and be like, look, I'm giving you free yield. Uh, that will not impress the AIs. And then the fifth priority in my own personal list was just any other remaining city-states. And then the, the one, as I said before, the one big no-no is uh, don't build them in um, foreign the territory of foreign cities with which you are perpetually at war. You're just doing them a favor and will not get any benefit out of it. Or any city you plan to capture. Yeah, in that case, it probably is wasted effort. Yeah, or if you're uh, in multiplayer, the cities are the other human players. I mean, unless you're in competitive where you're going to kill them, but if you're in a cooperative game, hey, spam their coasts. Yeah, right. Of course, definitely. And then I believe that the Fatorias, or not the Fatorias specifically, but the um, the now unit, I think, becomes obsolete when you research steam power because it gets replaced with ironclads. So... You want to make sure you get all your Fatorias built before you research Steam Power. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be building Ironclads instead of now units. But there is one way around that, and that is because uh, Ironclads require coal. If you exhaust all your coal by, like, say, selling them to another civilization, uh, and you have zero coal in your stockpile then the game will allow you to go back to building the obsoleted now unit. And what you can do is you can uh, gold buy them if you need more, because then they're instantly produced in one turn and you don't have to worry about like the game stockpiling more coal while you're building the now and then going over the threshold of requirements and uh, changing your build queue to an ironclad because the uh, ironclads don't get to build Fatorias. So... Uh, if you if you're later in the game and you still want to build Fatorias, then uh, that's what you got to do in order to do it. Anything else that any of you see in this guide that uh, stands out as worth mentioning? Be friendly to Mogadishu. Yes, which uh, that city state's uh, suzerain ability is that your trade routes become uh, embarked traders become immune to being plundered. 
uh, which means you will have crap tons of trade routes going around, which will almost all be going to foreign coastal cities, and uh, making them immune from being plundered is very advantageous, uh, because you don't have to worry about some stray barbarian caravel uh, coming around and wrecking your entire economy. Uh, and you can also have that peace of mind without also having to do the micromanagement of manually escorting all of your embarked traders with, you know, your naval units, because unfortunately you can't, like, attach the units together like you can with other civilian units. I really wish Firaxis would have found a way to, to do that. That would have been so convenient. Uh, and yeah, if you are playing against Portugal, uh, one of the things that I always like to do in my guides is write up also a brief summary of, you know, tips and tricks for playing against the civilization that I'm writing about. So if you do find yourself uh, playing against Portugal in a particular game and you want to, you know, neutralize or limit their ability to use their abilities, then one way to do so is to just not build coastal cities and then you don't have to worry about them getting increased trade yield from your cities. You're also not going to get the benefit of them building Fatorias, but uh, if you're really worried about them becoming super filthy, stinking rich, then just don't give them cities that they can trade with, and then they won't be able to. Or just kill them. Yeah, yeah. that's always the go-to thing. Just wipe them out as soon as you meet them. I mean, they're not especially uh, resistant to land conflict. Yeah, but it, and that's going to depend on your play style and also difficulty setting because Portugal typically isn't going to be a huge military threat. They don't have much in the way of, of military or combat advantages. They're mostly a trade and commercial civilization. So, you know, you, you, you probably want to prioritize knocking out the more aggressive militarist civilizations before they start, like, you know, snowballing. So if, if you've got the choice between taking out, like, Montezuma and taking out Portugal... You know, at the beginning of the game, you, you maybe focus on Montezuma first, just so that he doesn't become a problem later. But, you know, that'll depend, of course, on actual game circumstances. You don't know, because, like, the AIs that don't build as many military units, once you conquer them, you get stronger, and uh, then it becomes easier to deal with those other guys. That's true, and it really also depends on, like, when those other civs, like, unique units and stuff come online. Like, when are they going to be the most militarily powerful or dangerous so, you know, for some civs, militaristic civs, they don't get their unique units and aren't particularly strong until, you know, later in the game, you know, medieval, renaissance, industrial era, in which case you don't necessarily have to beeline to knocking them out right away. But if you do find yourself uh, in peaceful relations with Portugal and they are building Feitorias in your cities, uh, one of the things that you can do with them is if, you're, uh, if your city... If the workable radius of your cities overlap and uh, Portugal builds Feitorias in um, in that space that's overlapping between cities and they're sending trade routes to one of those cities or the other, you actually can change which city is working that tile and that changes the ownership of the tile, which I think also negates Portugal's uh, trade route bonus. So this is something that human players will do to Portugal, but which the civ uh, or which the AI civs probably are not smart enough to know to do. Which can be a, a sneaky city assignment of a tile ever. I didn't know this thing it would do. Yeah, I think in, in Gathering Storm they made it so that uh, changing which city works an overlapped tile actually does change the ownership, and this has become relevant because it means that uh, it affects like national park prerequisites. 
and uh, district placement. Like I noticed it with the when I was doing the Maya because you know the Maya build their cities so close together. There's a lot of overlap. And one of my concerns when the Maya first came out was like, oh, you're going to have to like micromanage like which city annexes which tile because otherwise you're not ever going to be able to build districts on certain cities because uh, the tiles are going to technically belong to the other city. But I tested it. And changing which tile worked the city changed the underlying ownership. So unless Firaxis has since patched that to change it back, as far as I know, it, it still works that way. No, I just meant more so that the AI... Uh, I, I've never heard of the AI doing that, but I didn't, haven't watched carefully either. If the AI actually changes it ever. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I have no idea. I haven't done like that crazy level of, of testing. I don't know what, if anything, you could do to potentially provoke the AI into doing something like that, even to test it. Yeah, you'd have to notice somehow. Yeah, you would just have to happen to notice it by happenstance. But yeah, that's a sneaky, cheeky little trick that you can do to also negate Portugal's uh, special abilities while still receiving your own benefits from that Feitoria. Of course, if you're doing that against a human Portuguese player, they will probably not be very happy with you. Yeah, but what are they going to do about it? Uh, assuming that they even notice. They might not even notice. Yeah, I was going to say, you're, you start making so much money with Portugal after a certain point, I don't think you're going to notice one or two cities not being as quite as good as they were. But it's also going to be, especially if a Portuguese player doesn't know that this is something the other um, players can do, Like they might just start noticing their gold income going down, and they might not have any clue why that's happening. And it's not really going to be a super easy thing to figure out like unless you are going into your trade route screen like every turn and looking at how much gold is coming from each route like you're not going to remember which you know which route was generating how much gold and, and what cities they were going to and stuff like that or are you going to go and double check to make sure you haven't gotten one of your uh trade routes sniped by barbarians first before you even think that the, the human player did something yeah, I mean, my first instinct in a case like that would probably be to assume that, like, a, a trade deal expired, you know, and, like, yeah. selling a resource or something, like, expired, and, oh, that's why my gold must be going down. Maybe I should go into diplomacy and start selling more stuff. Because you, you normally think of your trade routes as basically being, like, a fixed value, unless the route itself gets canceled or plundered. Just check the setup every turn. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. So anyway, if you uh, yeah, if, if you want to read more, uh, you know, feel free to check out my personal blog at megabearsfan.net. Uh, there's also a link to all of these strategy guides on Civ Fanatics, so you can search for them there. Uh, I also post them on the 2K forums, and also I try to uh, post them on the uh, Steam forums. So if you use those uh, forums instead of Civ Fanatics for some weird reason, uh, you can find it there as well. Forums? What was that, Canis? 2K forums still exist? Uh, it does, but in my experience, it is mostly dominated by Chinese bots trying to sell sneakers. <laughs> Sounds about right. And that's when I can even log into it. Like, one of the reasons that I, I'm not active on the 2K forums very often is I have this recurring problem where it, it won't just let me log in. Like, I type in the same username and the same password, and it just says... Uh, you know, that the account's not recognized or the password's invalid or whatever. And I'm just like, all right, whatever. And then I'll come back like a month later, type in the same username and password, and it works just fine. So I don't maybe. know if they have issues with their... Trying to sell Chinese shoes. Yeah, maybe they think I'm trying to sell Chinese shoes. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe they have, you know, DDoS attacks or something like that going on all the time that uh, clog up their um, authentication servers or something. Who knows? 
I just know those forums are kind of a mess. But the stuff is posted there, so if, if you're one of the people who still uses the 2K forums, then you can check it out there. Yeah, Civ Fanatics is a fantastic resource. If you're not using it for looking up things relating to Civ, uh, it is definitely the place to go. Uh, do any of you have any other like tips or tricks or advice with Portugal or for playing against Portugal that I maybe did not mention or did not include in the guide? I have not played as Portugal yet, so I can't really say. Yeah, I think I've mentioned anything I've thought of while you were going through the list, so... Cool. All right. This has been Polycast episode 393. This has been Canis Albinus, who is annoyed by technical issues. And I will be uh, saying goodbye. And with us today, we've had all three of our regular additional co-hosts, including Makalua. I sometimes do annoy by technical difficulties. The me and team. Turning as many Fatorias back into Fatorias as possible. And Mega Bears fan. Oh boy, inching up on that big 400. Yeah. 400? It's okay, they say episode 400 is the new episode 300. <laughs> oh, I thought you were talking about something else. <laughs> oh. He's talking about his age, guys. Yeah, he's really 400 years old. Well, I, I also am slowly inching up on that 4 uh mark as well. I, I still have a few years to go, but I'm sure it'll be here before I know it. Yeah, I think you got a ways until the 4 one, though. <laughs> yeah, that one's a little <laughs> further off. Uh, but you know what? Hey, if, if I'm getting to the point where I am celebrating that coming up, I that's a pretty sweet deal. Yeah, I agree. It's the way to go if we can pull it off. Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 sound clips. Copyright take to interactive. Copyright the polycast at thepolycast.net.